Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Just want to add my welcome too to those uh, who are from different churches here. Put up your hand if you're from a different church, not Grace Church. Brilliant. So warm welcome to all of you. It's great to have you here. I wonder if you have any unique possessions, if you have anything that is one of a kind to you. I have uh, one in my back pocket here, I'll show you, which is my wallet. Now, it's not because of what's in it, it's because of the wallet itself. My, my grandfather was a, a, a Queensland farmer and he was also a leather worker. And so this uh, wallet is made by him by hand and I remember going to his place on holidays and going into the leather room and the smell and you know he taught us how to crack those big kind of cattle whips, you know, those huge long things that crack, and he, uh, he'd make saddles and all kinds of things. So my wallet is special. It's one of a kind to me. Uh, another thing that's one of a kind to me is my wife. We had an 18-year anniversary uh, not long ago, so we're, it's uh, starting, to, starting to look like a big number. And, um, <laughs> But she's one of a kind to me. There's no one else in my life like her. She's the mother of my children. She's the woman, the one woman I love beyond all other women. And so there's no other woman uh, in my life compared to my wife. So um, she's unique to me. But, you know, there are other wallets, aren't there? And other people will have other things that they say, well, this is a special possession that I have. And many of you have wives that you would say are something similar to about. There's uh, that your wife is one of a kind to you. All of these are not completely unique. Today we're talking about what it means that Christ is completely unique. We're talking about the uniqueness of Christ in our multicultural world. What does it mean that Christ is completely unique? And if so, if he's unique, how is he unique? The prevailing message in our culture and our world is that Jesus Christ is not unique that there are others like him, that he is comparable in some way to other people or other ideas. What different ideas have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard your friends say, you know, um, one of my children at school has heard from at least four different teachers uh, that the, the God that Muslims and Jews and Christians worship is all the same. They just approach that God in different ways. Another friend of mine uh, has often told me, Christianity is such a Eurocentric religion. It's culturally biased. It's culturally narrow. It's not relevant to all other cultures as it is in Europe. And we get these kind of views, don't we, from popular culture as well. Uh, Oprah Winfrey quite openly and boldly said, Jesus can't possibly be the only way. Uh, John Lennon said this. He said, I believe in God, but not as one thing. Not as an old man in the sky. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It's just the translations have got it wrong. And we get this view from other religions as well. The Dalai Lama said that Jesus had many previous lives. And in those previous lives he was an enlightened person who taught lots of truths and was a teacher of Buddhism. And he said this, The Dalai Lama says, he also taught the same religious views, as I mentioned earlier, be patient, tolerant, compassionate. This, you see, is the real message in order to become a better human being. Now, all of these statements 
are from different angles and attack a challenge to the one issue of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. What do we think about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and what does the scripture say? You know, this relentless tide of challenge against the uniqueness of Christ has this eroding effect on our faith, doesn't it? And we need to watch out for it. And if we're, if we're not careful, it can blunt in our convictions. It can, uh, it can cause us to question the truth of the gospel. How strong are your convictions about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? How well honed are they? I've got some tools in my shed, which the shed's quite damp. I've got a, a saw in there, and I've got these clippers that are quite good clippers. But, you know, I was trying to get at the, the branches of the larch trees out the back, and those tools were useless in getting at those branches. They were blunt. How, how sharp are your convictions about the uniqueness of Christ? What impact does it have on our lives uh, and our witness when those convictions are blunted? Our big idea today is this, that a strong and clear conviction about Jesus Christ's uniqueness as Son of God and Lord of all is critical to our healthy faith and effective witness in the world. So pretty simple. Okay? A strong and clear conviction about the uniqueness of Christ is critical to our enjoyment of our faith, a vibrant faith and an effective witness. What about a lack of conviction? I think perhaps a lack of conviction about the uniqueness of Christ is perhaps the single greatest thing that will dull our spiritual life and witness. So it's a core part of our faith. What does God's word tell us? Let's have a look at this passage in Hebrews 1 again. I'll read it out because it's quite short. So we can read it out a second time. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also... He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So here's the outline from the text. Four things that we're going to look at, that Jesus Christ is unique as these four things, as spokesman, as sustainer, as saviour, and sovereign. I thought of putting these starting with M, but uh, I'm going to go with S, messenger, mediator. I went with S's. So these are the four. Maybe this isn't new to you, but just like those tools in my shed that need to be sharpened, we're not doing anything different to them. We're just bringing them back to their original condition. So I don't apologize if you've heard these things before. Uh, we need these things again and again to be sharpened. What's the situation in the book of Hebrews? So this is how the writer opens up the book of Hebrews. What's the situation? A little bit of context. Well, the writer is writing to these believers who came from a Jewish background, probably. And the challenge to them, they've experienced persecution, and the challenge to them is that their beliefs are a little too simplistic, that they should revert back to this old Jewish teaching that they had, these Jewish customs that they held on to, and so they're starting to question, wouldn't it be more comfortable if we reverted back to a more compromised position on Jesus and added in some of these customs we had before? And so the author of this book devotes a large amount of writing to convince them, to show them that they need to hold fast to the teaching they've believed. And you know, that same temptation is there for us today, in a different way, not to revert to Judaism, but to be 
to, to regress to a more culturally acceptable view about Jesus, to kind of compromise a little bit in our minds and to make life a little bit easier and accommodating with the culture we live in. Maybe our beliefs are too simplistic about Jesus. Is he really the eternal son? How could he really be the only way? Maybe it's a bit narrow-minded to say that. Maybe it's a bit arrogant or extreme or fundamentalist or culturally biased. What about other cultures and their ways to God? Uh, what right do we have as Christians to claim our beliefs are better? So the, the, the author of Hebrews writes to convince them of this one thing, that Jesus Christ is unique and is infinitely better. We need to hear this too. And he starts this book with a meteor statement I can, I can think of in four verses about Jesus Christ and who he is. In fact, these four verses, you could, at a pinch, you could use these to correct any kind of major cult error and you could build a very strong Christology just from these verses, an understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Wonderful verses of scripture. Let's look at them. First of all, Jesus is a spokesman. He's a messenger, uh, God's prophet. You know, uh, in Islamic teaching, Jesus was a prophet. They will teach, Muslims teach, that Jesus is a prophet, but one of many prophets, but not the ultimate prophet. And their ultimate prophet, of course, is Muhammad. Now, according to the Quran, uh, there's specific verses to Christians to not call God any more than a prophet, not call Jesus any more than a prophet, certainly not God's son. And so in doing so, Jesus is relegated to uh, a place among the prophets and certainly not the ultimate one. What does this verse, these verses say to us? Verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. What's that telling us? Jesus is God's ultimate word to the world. So many prophets came before and they spoke God's words. What's different about Jesus? See how it says last days there. So when Jesus came, something changed. The times changed. Jesus came as God's final and ultimate word. All the other prophets before spoke about the one to come, about the son, Jesus is that message. So many prophets spoke God's message. Jesus is God's message. And that's why John 1 calls him the word. He himself is God's message. So he's unique as prophet. And he's unique as prophet because he's God's one and only son. He represents God exactly. Have a look at verse 3. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. We see the sun because we see the light coming from the sun. We see God because the light coming from God is revealed in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate prophet. He's the, the message of all the scriptures that came before. You think about that story of the, on the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus appeared in front of Peter, James and John. And uh, who, who appeared before them? It was Jesus chatting with Moses and Elijah. One, in, one sort of characterizes the law and one characterizes the prophets, that's Elijah. Together they characterize the fullness of Old Testament revelation. So here they are chatting to Jesus and then what happens? There's a voice from heaven, uh, Matthew 17, 5, and the voice from the clouds, God says this. He says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. He's who you need to listen to. He is the message. All of Scripture came before 
Jesus is the message about which Scripture is written. And so all of Scripture is about Jesus. John 5.46, Jesus said this, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. What did Moses write about? He wrote about the Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus' teaching points to himself as well. It makes sense that Jesus' teaching would be about himself. It's like when you drive somewhere and there are signposts to that place. You don't drive into Dublin and then see signs pointing to Dublin. Once you get there, uh, there are signs about Dublin. And so Jesus speaks about himself. All the other prophets were signposts. He's the destination. Think about what he said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the truth. He didn't say, think about that. He didn't say, I am a truth. He didn't say, I speak about the truth or I point to the truth. He said, I am the truth. He's the ultimate message. Any message that doesn't uphold Jesus as the ultimate prophet isn't from God at all. Quite simple. So Jesus is unique as God's ultimate spokesman. All right, next point here. Jesus is unique as sustainer. So we've into our second point of four here. There's a book by Michael Hart called The 100. I wonder if you've heard of it. It was written in 1978 and it sold more than half a million copies and it's been translated into 15 different languages. And in this book, the 100 most influential people in history have been ranked. And here they are, the top five. Number one, Muhammad. Number two, Isaac Newton. Number three, Jesus Christ. Number four, Buddha. Number five, Confucius. What does our passage of scripture have to say about this? Have a look at verses two and three. It says this, His son God appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Two things about Jesus in this passage. One, he created the universe. Who created Muhammad and Buddha and Isaac Newton and Confucius? Jesus did. He's the one who created them. He created their minds. He created their mouths. He created the laws of gravity uh, that Isaac Newton studied and the laws of kinematics that he studied. And the sun sustains the universe. Who is it that keeps gravity going? It's Jesus Christ. He keeps this universe going. So God executes his sovereign reign through Jesus Christ. To reduce Jesus to a comparison with other people is to strip him of his divine value. And it's an act of great arrogance. It's not arrogant to say Jesus is the only way. It's actually arrogant to reduce him to a level of comparison. We forget who we're dealing with. As a young officer cadet in the army, I remember having a chat with uh, other guys, some older soldiers, about the, this famous battle in Australian military history called the Battle of Long Tan in Vietnam. And I, I'd been reading a bit about this, and so I thought I knew what I was talking about. And as an arrogant young man, I uh, corrected an older sergeant major on a point about which company was out on the attack on, uh, in this battle. And... Uh, Afterwards, I realised that he was actually in the Vietnam War himself. So when we, when, we, when we speak of Jesus in any other way than what he's revealed, we're acting very arrogantly. Who is it we're dealing with here? Think again about John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the life. 
He didn't say, I offer life. He said, I am the life. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. So your life is bookended. Your whole story is bookended by Jesus Christ. He made you, and one day you'll stand before him. He's the beginning and the end. Third one, he's Saviour. I wonder if you've done anything that you would call unique. Um, I have done something unique. I once uh, fainted when my son Hudson was born. And it's, there's no way I could t- give you excuses. I could give you a lot of excuses and reasons why that happened, but it just makes it worse. <laughs> you still have a good cause to laugh at me. And we went back to the birth clinic. Uh, Cherie went back to have a checkup, and I went back with the two little boys we had at that time. And um, we went back in, and a midwife found out who we were, and I hadn't met this midwife before, it was someone else who worked there, and she said, so you're the one. (laughs) And I told her that my mum always said I was special. (laughs) Apparently there hadn't been other stories of people, men, fainting in the birth clinic. There's five words in our passage that tell us of something Jesus has done that no one else has done or can do. Have a look at verse 3b. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Five words. He provided purification for sins. No one else has accomplished this. Think about these words for a moment. He provided it. There's nothing you can do to provide it. There's nothing you can do. No amount of religious activity will provide purification for sins. No amount of washing in the Ganges River will make someone pure from sin. No amount of meditation. No amount of fasting or prayer. No amount of being a good person. No amount of praying outside of Jesus' provision. There's no other way to be pure from sin. He provided atonement for sin. And he provided it for sins. For all sins. For all of your sins. Not just a few of your sins, but all of them. And he provided purification. Think about what that means. Cherie does a great job of cleaning my cricket trousers. And they get grass stains on them every game. Usually because I fall over. And they, she does a great job of cleaning them. But still they get less and less white each time. Jesus' purification for your sins is complete. Utterly complete. Look at verse 3b again. It says, after he provided this, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's finished, he said on the cross. It is finished. The whole work has been done. So what he did for you is sufficient to make you acceptable before a holy God. So I want to ask, have you received Jesus' provision for your sins, for purification for your sins? If you have, are you living in the enjoyment of that reality? Or do you think in some way, in some partial way, you've got to make up the deficit? You don't have to. Live enjoyment of his complete purification for sins. What does purification for sins require? It requires the death of a perfect substitute. Those of us who are believers in Christ, we know this. The penalty for sin is death. That's the payment that's required. Now, in the Old Testament, people offered animals, didn't they? Bulls, goats, or a young cow. But these were only symbolic, and they only cleanse us on the outside, only cleanse the, the, the people of Israel on the outside, but Christ's blood is unique because he's perfect. Have a look at, maybe flick over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. Christ died as a, an innocent substitute, a perfect substitute, 
This is the real sacrifice. The animals symbolized this. They just pointed to this sacrifice. They couldn't accomplish it. Christ's death purifies us inwardly. So let's look at Hebrews 9.13. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? So this is the way, this is the only way God provided to be pure from sin. There's no other way, no other sacrifice, no other claim by any other religious leader to be the saviour. He's the only one. And it says elsewhere, doesn't it, in the Bible, that if, any, if, if righteousness could be gained in any other way, Christ died for nothing. Christ wouldn't have to have sacrificed his son if there was another way. In the Lake District, there's lots of paths. And sometimes up hills, you can see multiple paths going up the same hill. There's all kinds of ways you can get around the Lake District. But there are some mountains in the world where there's only one way up. And the higher the mountain you usually, the less paths there are up. And this is what it's like approaching God's insurmountable holiness. There's only one way up to the summit. There's only one safe path. And you attempt any other path, it leads to death. So Jesus said, again, John 14, 6, he said, I am the way. He didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way. No one can come to the Father except through me. So Christ is unique as the spokesman, as the creator, as the sustainer, and as the saviour. So now, fourthly, the sovereign. Last one. I recently saw a BBC uh, series on, uh, you might have seen it, on um, Richard III, Benedict Cumberbatch, and it's about the War of the Roses. And I'm learning about all this English history and all these kings, and I, I barely can keep up with all these disputed monarchs. I'm glad it's nice and simple today. And there's one queen, and she's undisputed, and it's all very simple, the way it should be. Maybe some people challenge the idea of the queen's reign, but she's the undisputed sovereign. And so it is with Christ over this universe. Some may refuse to acknowledge his reign, but he's the rightful, eternal sovereign of the universe, and no one else has a claim. Have a look at verses 3b to 4. It says, After he had provided purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. We use the term right-hand man uh, to talk about someone who has authority on behalf of someone. It's a symbol of strength, the right hand. So Jesus sitting at God's right hand is a symbol of his power and his authority that's given to him. He rules and reigns over God's kingdom. What does it mean to have a superior name? We talk about, we use that term a lot. Uh, we say, there's a lot of big names in that movie. Or we say, Marcus Rashford has really made a name for himself this year at Manchester United. Or we, maybe in a nasty way, we hear, we hear people say, who's that guy? Well, he's just a no-name. We talk about this idea of having a name. Some people are born into a great name. Some people inherit a name that's great by the things they do. Jesus, before all things, had the greatest name, didn't he? It says in Philippians 2 that he didn't consider equality with God something to, to hold on to. He had the greatest name. But he also inherited a greater name yet because of the things he did. 
What did he do? He came and won victory over sin and death. What's this bit in those verses about angels' names? Maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal to us. We think of angels and we think of maybe babies with wings or people with wings. What's the picture the Bible has about angels? David saw an angel standing between heaven and earth with a sword drawn ready to strike Jerusalem with plague. John saw an angel in Revelation and he was tempted to worship it. Um, the angels Isaiah saw were so mighty that they shook the thresholds of the temple. Angels are mighty beings, but yet these angels have to cover their faces before the one who sits on the throne. That's how glorious Jesus is. He's the name before whom every name will bow. Every name in human history will bow before this one name, Jesus Christ. So he's Lord. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? He's king. He's the absolute authority over every race and every culture. And every person that's ever lived. Think about the term Jesus used of himself. He's the son of man. What does that mean? Turn to Daniel chapter 7 and we see what Jesus is talking about. And when he talks about being the son of man, he's loading in all these ideas in this passage. So Every time we read in the Gospels of Jesus saying he's the son of man, this is what he's talking about. Just think about how glorious he is. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and I was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." Why should Jesus be worshipped by every nation, every culture? Because he's the king of kings. He's the king over God's eternal kingdom. He's unique beyond comparison. He belongs, to him belongs all glory, authority and majesty. So we'll just wrap this up again with those four headings. We said that Jesus is unique as God's messenger. He's he's the author of life. He's the saviour of sin, from sin and he's the king of kings. So just some applications, three applications. I'm going for cheesiness so you remember, okay? Gold, bold, behold. I could have gone with others, like don't fold, hold to what you've been told. I'm just going with these three. Gold, bold, behold. Gold, what, what, this has to do with what we worship. Think about the uniqueness of Jesus. What does that mean? Think about the possessions that you have that are unique, The rarer something is, the more scarce it is, the more valuable it is, the more precious it is, the more common things are, the less they have value. Think about Jesus. He's the one being in all the universe that's incomparable. Nothing compares to him. What does that mean about his value? It means that he's the treasure beyond comparison. It means that if you possess him, you're richer than beyond your wildest dreams. So what treasure are you seeking after? If we can understand the uniqueness of Christ, it's going to change what we value. It's going to change what we pursue. It's going to change what we think is important. So what treasure are you pursuing? And what does the uniqueness of Christ have to say about what you hold dear? John Flavel said, The merchants of the earth trade and strive for the dear-bought treasures of it, whilst the price of Christ, alas, too ever low, ever too low, falls every day lower and lower upon the exchange of this world. It's true today, isn't it? Even though he wrote that a few hundred years ago, it's true today. Let's live like people who value Jesus as supremely 
precious and unique. Second one, bold. A strong view of Jesus Christ's uniqueness will change our witness. Like I said before, it makes us sharp in our witness. It makes evangelism simple. Not easy, but simple. We don't have to correct everybody's errors on everything. We don't have to be an expert on other religions. We don't have to be an expert on every culture. Yes, it's important to understand them. Yes, it's important to find out how they're thinking about things. But what do we really need to know? We need to proclaim Jesus Christ. It's not arrogant. It's actually the most humble thing to do because he's the King of Kings. So don't be hesitant to promote the unique Christ. We need to be respectful but not hesitant. This is what will make us effective evangelists is a strong conviction about the uniqueness of Christ. If we're hesitant about proclaiming Christ's uniqueness, we'll be hesitant in evangelism. Have a look at verse 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I want to draw out this connection in this, this verse. It's on the screen here. It says this, In your hearts, revere or set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. There's a connection here between setting apart Jesus as Lord and being ready. What does it mean to set apart Jesus as Lord? It means to honour him and to recognise him as the unique sovereign of all. Do you see the connection? So if, if you're feeling less bold in evangelism, if you're feeling a little bit hesitant to present your faith to others, Perhaps it has to do with a lack of conviction, a blunted conviction about the uniqueness of Christ and who he is. So this will help us to be sharp. You know, if we doubt Christ's uniqueness, if we start to question his uniqueness, we actually question his existence at all. Um, I'll give you an example that C.S. Lewis draws out in the, uh, the last book of the Narnia series called The Last Battle. Now, in this story, Narnia is deceived by this false Aslan a donkey dressed up as a lion. And, and so this enemy nation from the south called the Kalormines, they come up and they start enslaving these talking beasts of Narnia who, were, who believe in Aslan. And these uh, Kalormines start talking about their god, this nasty god called Tash, this vulture-looking thing with four arms. And uh, they start saying that Aslan is the same as Tash. Aslan is no different to Tash. And so there's this one clever cat named Ginger who joins in the, the deception. And I'll just read out what Ginger says, talking to this Kalormine officer, a Tarkan of, of Kalormine. He says, Noble Tarkan, says the cat in that silky voice of his, I just wanted to know exactly what we both meant today about Aslan being no more than Tash. Doubtless, most sagacious of cats, said the other, you have perceived my meaning. You mean, said Ginger, that there's no such person as either. All who are enlightened know that, said the Tarkan. The message of the world is that Jesus isn't unique. The belief that underlines that is that he's not really Christ at all. So we need to hold firm to our conviction of Christ being unique. Last one is behold. That what we need to do is seek to behold this Christ in scripture every day I wonder if you've ever built a sandcastle a nice big one and then you come back later on and uh, you look at what what's remaining of it after the tides washed in and all you see is this small mound of sand I wonder if you've seen that 
There's no way to prevent that, is there, except to keep building and building and building up this sandcastle again. We can't stop the tide of opposition to the uniqueness of Christ. But what we can do is keep going back to our beliefs, our faith, our convictions, and sharpening them up, building them up again in God's word. So let's do that. Let's do that. Let's encourage one another daily and weekly. Uh, Point one another to scripture. We need to source our truths, not from this world, but from scripture about who Christ is. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we reflect on what these verses say about you. Um, There's so much here that presents you in such glory. You made us, you made all things. You're the eternal ruler. You sustain everything. You keep this universe going by your powerful word. You're the one who revealed the Father to us. You're the ultimate message from him. And Lord, you're our saviour. You provided purification from sin. Lord, you cleanse us completely, all those who put their faith in you. So we praise you as the unique Lord of all this morning. Lord, just want to pray that our lives would reflect your worth, that our witness of you would be one that promotes you and presents you as the unique, precious Lord of all. Pray for this MIO team. Pray, Father, that you would bless them as they seek to make Christ known to people from all these different nations. Lord, we ask that you'd make them effective, sharpen their convictions about who you are and make them effective witnesses, that your word might penetrate people's lives and bring them into relationship with you. Lord, we don't look at other religions and, and condemn those who, who believe these things. It makes us sad, our hearts grieve, and we long for them to come in to fellowship with the living God. And so we pray that you would bring people to salvation through Jesus Christ, even over these next couple of weeks. Um, thank you that we can gather together as a body. Thank you we, you have uh, saved us and redeemed us as one church that worships the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We exalt you this morning. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.